You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 108. On today's show, I chat with lighting designer Marcia Stern. We talk about her time working in New York City nightclubs in the 80s, being on payroll for venues versus freelance income, transitioning to working in architecture, saving for retirement by putting into Social Security, and her entry into the entertainment industry via a music career and shifting focus back to music since the pandemic. Marsha and I are both lighting designers, and as such, we do get a little too specific on some lighting tangents. I tried to pull most of that into the outtakes on Patreon. That's where Marsha talks about lighting at Radio City Music Hall and calling six follow spots all at once while running the console. We also chat about LDI, the Stage Technology Conference in Las Vegas in November. Marsha and I will both be there and we'll be recording a live episode of Artistic Finance. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel. We're recording this on July 14th, 2022, and last week, the 29 Broadway shows that are currently running grossed a combined $30.1 million, and Leah Michelle was announced to be taking over the role of Funny Girl on Broadway, and that's going to happen in September, and she's replacing Beanie Feldstein, and Tova Felsha will be taking over as her mother, who's replacing Jane Lynch. So if you want to see Jane Lynch and Beanie Feldstein, you have two weeks to do it because Beanie is leaving at the end of July. Now let's jump right to our guest, Marsha Stern. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Ethan. This is great. All right. Now, Marsha, usually I'm a pretty lighthearted guy, but today I think the interview is going to be Stern. All right. So, Marsha, you sent me a bio, and the first line of it says, a lighting designer, programmer, technician, and production manager in New York City nightclubs from the late 70s through the mid-90s. And I just love all that because, one, it shows us that you've been in the business for a while, and two, it's that you're not just one thing, which I think anybody in lighting wears multiple hats, et cetera, et cetera. But I just love that that's how you started off with is I'm a bunch of these things. Thank you. I mean, I, I will certainly say that I've like to think I've graduated from that proverbial school of hard knocks and it's not everybody's path, but it was my path. You know, I'm very grateful that I've had such amazing opportunities that have opened themselves up to me in a career that I never, ever, ever, ever in my wildest prior to 1980, 79, 80 would have imagined I would be in um, because my focus was music. And that's what drew me to New York City. And that's what the first few years of my career in New York City were. And it just kind of segued much to my surprise to lighting. And that became my primary career for close to 40 years. All right. I love that because anybody in lighting, nobody dreams when they're a little person. I don't think about being a lighting designer because you just don't even know what that is. You don't really know. Right. I don't think I ever heard 
lighting designer as a viable profession. And God forbid, if you said you wanted to be a musician, that was poo-pooed upon because, of course, nobody was a rock star or you worked in an orchestra. So what did you do in, in music and how did that lead into lighting? The answer to the second question is I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But what brought me to music and to New York City from my hometown in Florida was to explore a career in the music business. I had aspirations of being a songwriter, of being a producer. I had a musical background. I played instruments. I studied songwriting. I studied composing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for me at that time, just prior to my 22nd birthday, the more logical choice was to come to New York and start a career because if I'd gone to school again in four years, I'd still have to do the same thing, which was start a career and work. And I was very fortunate to get a job as a publicist, another profession I don't think I had ever heard of before and knew virtually nothing about, but fortunately had enough of a skill set because of my education that I could begin this and learn. And the irony was that one of our main clients at the Howard Bloom organization was TK Records and TK Records was based out of Miami, Florida and literally was the only record company in South Florida. And part of my reasoning for going to New York was there were many more fish in the sea. So why should I settle for Florida where there was one possibility? <laughs> Let's go to New York. And of course, that was my intro into the wonderful world of disco because I represented a lot of artists uh, that were on the TK label, George McRae, the Ritchie family, um, you know, huge stars, Betty Wright, uh, that had crossed over stars, Casey and the Sunshine Band, that end of it also represented rock and roll and, and did publicity for ZZ Top. And that mushroomed into many friendships and relationships. And I, I think the entertainment business in general is filled with loving relationships that are probably more friendships than business sometimes. And sometimes those friendships are more business than friendships, which is why they're sustainable, uh, at least in my humble opinion. And um, that led to a series of jobs in the 70s that ultimately put me where I really wanted to be, which was making music and as part of a production team called the Joe Long Sound. That's kind of what we ultimately morphed into. And that fell apart and I needed work. And I was offered a few days of working lights at a local club downtown, which I took happily for $35 cash and all the drink I all the 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 drinks I could drink. And I was with my friends by then who were some of the top reporting DJs in the business. And then one of my friends who worked at New York, New York, a very legitimate high profile club in Midtown Manhattan and one of the main rivals to Studio 54 at that time, um, at least with the owners. Uh, he was going off to a summer residency on Fire Island and literally said to me, Marsha, you know the music. If you can figure out the controls, you've got a job. And there began my professional career in 1980 as a lighting technician. And it just kind of stuck. Yeah, I like that it came from the music if, because you already know the music. So that was like a prerequisite to get into lighting. The lighting was like I you had to learn that to get the job, but you had you never would have gotten that opportunity if you didn't know the music. Correct. And and it's interesting because at that time 
in my particular instance, the lighting was being approached at as an artistic endeavor. And I was chosen to fill the space because of my artistic abilities. I was very fortunate that I had the technical capabilities to understand what was going on and how to do this. You know, that's a whole other skill set. Just because you can turn on a light switch doesn't mean that you can wire a room. Yeah, right. And uh, when you moved from Florida, how long were you working sort of doing the music thing before you got that lighting job? I would say my first job in the music business. uh, Well, actually, I started almost immediately. I moved in September or by October. I was working in a jingle production studio in Midtown and also working in what some of my schooling knowledge base was. And I was working for a group of endodontists in the medical profession in Midtown. And they knew I was looking for a job in the music business. And right after the holidays, so I'd say January 77, I got this break working with the Howard Bloom organization as a publicist. And that lasted Uh, through, through the summer of 1979, which I would pretty much say the summer into the fall of 79 was kind of the demise of the Joe Long sound. And, and then I started doing, you know, whatever odd jobs one can do. And that included this little bar down in the village, this little gay bar down in the village. And, um, and then in the spring of 80, I got my first professional job at New York, New York, um, which was the disco in Midtown. And I had overlapped with music for a number of years in the early 80s, 83, 84, maybe right through to, I guess, 85. I did a lot of technical work doing installs and whatnot to pick up extra bucks on the off days that I wasn't punching lights in the disco at night. And And I also made tapes, cassette tapes, which I sold at a couple of clients. And then by 85, I was working at the Red Parrot and the Palladium opened and I was working at the Palladium. So between those two, I could be working six, seven nights a week. Wow. <laughs> I also love your background. So if anybody's listening to this, you can go to YouTube and watch the video of this. But your background, like when we talked to Ken Billington, he has like playbills and show posters. All your background is like records, album covers, things like that. Thank you. Thank you. It's kind of strange how my music career from the 70s has come into a life of its own in this century. Um, In no small part to the Studio 54 documentary that was released in 2018. And on the bottom left is a poster from that. And I was a special consultant on that film. And I'm actually in the film. Above that are two lighting awards, and above that are my ba- a handful of backstage passes, among them some really cool signed ones that I've gotten over the years. And then the next three across the top are actually album covers from albums that I was on the production team of. And, okay, I can't help but notice that. Is it a gold record back there? Yes. What, what is that? <laughs> that is the gold record for the Sylvester album, Step 2 which had dance, disco, heat, and other assorted, a couple of other hits. Uh, But I think dance, disco, heat was one of the most infamous off of that record. Any case, that was awarded to Roy Thode. And Roy Thode was an iconic, groundbreaking DJ in the 70s, who sadly passed away in May of 1982. I dare say his full potential never was really resolved. 
never was really, you know, realized in that he was truly at the tops of his game. Uh, We were very, very close, extremely close, so close, in fact, that I was given much of his estate when he passed by the executor of his estate. And I have kept well over a hundred reel to reels, master reels that I received in pretty much deep cold storage. And I've begun digitizing them over the past decade and a half. There's a lot of people out there who enjoy the music and there's a lot of new audience out there who also enjoy the music. And that's actually in no small part to a relationship that I built with Sirius XM. And I've had the good fortune over the last 10 years, nine, 10 years to be affiliated with projects that have happened on Sirius XM Studio 54 radio. And so this has kind of been a resurgence in my musical career that came quite unexpectedly, yet here we are today. It sounded like maybe you had a steady paycheck with the publicist job, and then you got into lighting. I would say that when I was employed through the 70s, whether it was with the Howard Bloom organization or Can't Stop Productions or uh, Areola Records, whoever it was, yes, there was a steady paycheck involved. And the 70s in New York City were very wonderful at that time because you literally could live pretty damn close to one week pay equals one month's rent. You can't do that today. You know, if the way housing was in New York City when I moved there, the way it was when I left and moved back here in 2007, there's no way a single person could afford to live alone if they're just starting out their life and they don't really know where they're going or what they're doing. It's the roll of the dice. You know, it was a huge risk I took. But, you know, again, grateful that I knew there was always a safety net here. The worst that would happen is that I would fail. So it gave me the confidence to do things that perhaps I wouldn't have been able to do if my home environment hadn't been as secure, providing me that net, you know. Um, so there's there's a lot to be grateful for as far as how life takes you. But to answer your question, and I digress, I apologize. Um, I would say the music business for me was mostly filled with steady paychecks and jobs. In betweens, you pick up whatever work you can, however you can. Um, I also, as I said, worked for an endodontist office. That was very steady paycheck. I did freelance work doing uh, radio jingles. So that was freelance. Sometimes there were some days that they needed me if they were in production and there were other days that they didn't. And and there I learned what freelance was all about as well. I would say lighting was a good mix of the two. I did a lot of my freelance work while having a residency or a regular gig at a club. If I worked at a club three nights a week, Well, what was I doing the other four days? I could maybe work two nights at another club or I could go do off-Broadway installs on three or four of those days or work with someone who was doing a special event or X, Y, and Z. I mean, mean, it was really kind of limitless out there. You know, um, I could help a friend of mine with some of his, you know, filing of, you know, Roy, I used to pick up extra bucks with him because he had, you know, without exaggeration, thousands of records in his apartment that were viable. And can only imagine a stack this big that would come every week of new records and all the ones he'd go out to look and you had to weed through them and they had to be filed and put 
in some sensible order so that you knew, you know, and, and he was a friend, but when I wasn't earning a paycheck, you know, would help me out if I had a problem, um, you know, so that was kind of like freelance work or, you know, pay me five bucks an hour to do the filing and go over to his house for four or five hours one day and just put that whole pile of stuff in order, um, you know, as an assistant would. So I was fortunate to pick up a lot of work in between a lot of those club gigs that sometimes were just weekend gigs. Okay, interesting, interesting. Also, also interesting that we're saying steady paycheck. Like, wh- would a steady paycheck be to you? Would it be like you're working for a band for a month? I didn't work for bands. I worked for venues. But yes. Okay. Okay. So it would be the venue. It would be the venue that was providing me with a steady paycheck or cash flow. It depended on the venue and how they operated. I'm sure in the 70s, they operate way differently than they do now. My club days kind of ended with my tenure at the Palladium in the summer of 1990. So, you know, and at the Palladium, 100% of my pay was given to me on check. I punched a clock. I was paid to 40 hours regular time. After 40, I got time and a half. It was like a normal job like every other person. The difference was I might not clock in until nine o'clock at night and I might not clock out until five o'clock in the morning. And then if there was a Monday or a two, you know, if I worked Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but maybe came in in the daytime on Tuesday or Wednesday to do setup for a special performance or when we would shoot Club MTV, there were, you know, it was a full day of shooting. And then you followed that up with your gig on Saturday night because the club was open Saturday night. We'd shoot MTV on weekends. So you'd work Friday night, you'd shoot Saturday. You'd do Saturday night, you'd shoot Sunday or however the schedule went. But, you know, yeah, there were there were plenty of times that I'd go home and do a two hour turnaround. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're laughing about it, but if anybody's listening that doesn't know lighting or live events, it's like that's that that happens, the two-hour turnaround. <laughs> that is the nature of the beast. It's true. In live events, you know, I've had the good fortune to be involved with some pretty spectacular live events, huge, huge live events. Um, I um, remember sleeping in fuzzy road boxes. Thank God Verilite had carpeted all of their road cases because I took many a nap in a fuzzy road boxes. We are the company I work predominantly with, Robert Isabel Incorporated. We also were the largest renters of Verilites on the East Coast throughout the early 90s. When you put that against the rock and roll bands, because it was a rental light, you couldn't buy and install the light then, it was not available. It was a rental touring light. When you put that against some of the tours that were out, and you realize this one events guy. Used to rent more Verilites from Vanco than all the friggin' tours in the Northeast. You know, that's a statement for the kind of the kind of work that we did. Um, and it kept us very busy. Some of these big parties was a week, week's worth of work. It was great because I could work two weeks on a huge event, like, for example, Whitney Houston's wedding. I could make as much money in 10 days or two weeks as I would have in a 40-week month at a regular job pushing pencils eight hours a day. 
So it afforded me the opportunity to maybe then take a week and go to Fire Island because I had already finished my work week. So now I could go play and do something fun. That was probably more the motivation than the money, (laughs) the flexibility. But flexibility speaks for a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a Gary Vee thing. I think he says the one thing that people want in life is like time and flexibility or flexibility with time, you know, and it's like, it's like any business. It's like, why is Uber so successful? Because they're giving people their time back. Correct. And I think the pandemic has made many people aware of what they can do outside of that office environment. I think it's also made people really miss that office environment. But that's another story for people who are more office oriented. I will say this through my lighting career, I had to transition from special events into architectural world. And that happened predominantly because I blew my knee out while skiing. (laughs) So climbing ladders and running around and doing installs was really no longer viable. And again, good fortune shined on me. I answered an ad in the Times. I interviewed with a firm called Johnson Schwinghammer, who happened to be working on an installation at Caesars Forum Shops. FAO Schwarz was doing a huge store at the Caesars Forum Shops. And they were the lighting design firm. And I came to the table with all of these ideas on how we could do it with Verilites moving fixtures with automated fixtures. Mind you, I had spent the previous 10 years working with robotic fixtures, automated fixtures, not moving mirror scanners, actual Verilites that move because within those years, high end, none none of the other auxiliary companies could produce a robotic light because of the copyright infringements that were in effect at that time. Verilite was the only one. Verilite produced sale items at the time that the, and allowed you to do what they called a long-term lease, which when I did the FAO Schwarz, their deal was a long-term lease. And at the same time, I used theatrical fixtures from high-end systems who had just come out with their studio spot and studio color, which was their first moving head fixture. Because they could, because the litigation, the time frame on that. And, and, you know, during a couple of years, mid-90s to 99 when I incorporated, uh, and a little bit of overlap in 99, I worked with Johnson Schwinghammer, and, which was, again, another, yet again, another full-time job with, you know, normal benefits and you put into the social security system and all the normal W-2 stuff that you do when you get a paycheck. And I also worked with uh, Steve Brill and Dennis Sizes company, the lighting design group. And that was the transition between live events, clubs, live events, and getting into the wonderful world of architectural lighting and permanent installations. Yeah. Well, I was just going to mention that I work for the Lying Design Group. In fact, yesterday I did a gig with them. By all means, send my best. And Dennis was actually on this show two years ago. Well, you know, Dennis and I go back to we met when he worked at All My Children. And that had my or I don't know if it still does, but at the time it had a lot of my design in, in it. Yeah, I I was going to say it's still there. It's still big. And it probably I imagine that there is some 
There has I to be. I would imagine right? the skeleton for the uh, studios that are up around the balcony is pretty much the same. You know, even if the fixtures have swapped out over the years, which is what happens in design. That's funny. That that's a funny cross connect, though. It's six degrees of separation. You never know. Taking a break from the interview to mention our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash artistic finance. If you're enjoying the show, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. You'll get the outtakes from today's interview. That's where we talk about Marsha's autographed backstage passes with some pretty great autographs. Lighting at Radio City Music Hall and calling six follow spots all at once. Leasing Vera lights, the original moving lights, before you could buy them. And we chat about LDI, where we'll be recording a live episode of Artistic Finance. We'd love to see you there. And if you want free passes, reach out to Marsha or myself and we'll help you get those. So see you in Las Vegas in November. But anyway, you can listen to those outtakes at patreon.com slash artistic finance. You'll also get access to the archives of previous outtakes and bonus content, and you'll get links to our monthly video meetups. Thank you in advance for your support. Sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now back to the show. You said in 1999 that you incorporated. So what did you incorporate as and why did you do that? I incorporated as Marsha Stern Lighting Design and Consulting, comma, INC Incorporated, which today exists as a New York State corporation. And I did it mostly because I was beginning a very large architectural project with a personal client and there were liability issues in architecture that I wasn't having when I was doing, say, special events, working for an events person who carried the necessary insurance liabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden I was dealing directly with very large budgets and it was for protection, uh, liability protection. And that was the best way to do it. Uh, I did not become a big company. I didn't want to be a big company. So I just became Marsha Stern Lighting Design and Consulting, Inc. Okay, so you you did that for liability, and now it's 2022. Do you still have that company? Do you still use it? I still have it. I have not actively had a, a design client since the pandemic in 2020. Prior to that, for three-ish years, I worked for Acclaim Lighting, which is the architectural division of ADJ Group. Mm -hmm. And up until 2027, I did use it and it was active and I was working pretty much straight through most recently a job for um, the Bolson Restaurant Group on Long Island. Uh, Two restaurants I worked on for them, the Harbor Club on the North Shore and on the South Shore, Monsoon. Okay. And, and you're in Florida now, but we're up until the pandemic, were you mostly in New York? I moved to Florida in 2007 for my parents. Um, and I always had the house in the mountains and I kind of go back and forth when I can. But, but my relationship at that time also dissolved <laughs> with my moving to Florida and actually so much for the better, because if it couldn't withstand that, it probably wasn't going to withstand old age as it turned out. And um, Florida became my main domicile. Okay. And we also talked before this about 
retiring and you said, you know, it's important for people to be squirreling away for retirement. Before you incorporated, how were you saving for retirement? And did that change when you incorporated? Before I incorporated, retirement was, I guess, sort of saved for you when you're a W-2 recipient. There is a significant amount of your money that's taken out for your taxes and for your FICA, which is your social security. So that tends to accumulate over the years. And you don't think much about it when you're in your 20s and 30s. And of course, in my 30s, I began the freelance endeavors. And when someone is paying you $10 an hour as a freelancer or 20 or 50 or however many dollars an hour as a freelancer, if you don't take a percentage of that money and put it somewhere, then there is no retirement. Um, And so I was able to do that and purchase CD investments, start small, you know, you you start small when you don't have a big base to work from. And um, every job I had that had W-2 of, of course, the FICA would bump up the social security. But most of my investments, most of my savings, it wasn't that I had established a specific 401k plan through my company like a lot of people do. I ran it very much as though I was a freelancer. And when I had a nice fat paycheck and I had a client, because generally you have to learn how to budget your money, it comes in chunks. And when there's money left over at the end of the expenditures after the big chunk, then I'd put it away and squirreling away was pretty much it. And, and was squirreling away meaning like putting it in a brokerage? Putting some, some in brokerage, some in annuities, some in a CD, a, vari- a variety of assets. Okay. And were, were they in formal retirement accounts like an IRA? or? Yes, there were IRAs. And then there were also a couple of investment accounts that I still have today that, that you know, it's nice to have the funds if you need them. Uh, and until then, mutual funds kind of do their own thing. And yes, there are IRAs that I was dutifully squirreling away for every year. So even if I couldn't put surplus money into an investment account or a brokerage account, I did at least come up with the IRA every year. Got it. Okay. I also love that you mentioned about the FICA and the Social Security coming out of W-2 paychecks. Because I, as a freelancer, I love W-2 income. And I know some people are like, oh, if you get 1099, you can make more in taxes, savings and stuff like that. And I get that. But I absolutely love it when the taxes are already taken out, when I'm building up my social security uh, without me having to write a tax check at tax time. I agree. But I love I love that you pointed that out, that 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 is that is retirement savings by working. Yes, yes, it is. And and just like making an IRA contribution every year is retirement savings as well. And even if you can't do much, you could put in something. And that is something. And that money is somewhat protected. Anything really protected these days? I don't know. But But to answer your question about the difference between the FICA, I think even when you have freelance jobs, you know you have to pay taxes at the end of the day. And whether I'm getting a paycheck that is a paycheck that takes account of all of those things for me, or I'm getting a check from a client and now I have to deduct my own expenses and do my own accounting, I still have to know, in my case as a New York corporation, I can pay my taxes by March 15th. 
that that's it. End of story. So if I have a client who is writing me a check for $20,000 right off the top, I should be smart and take 20% and put it aside because I know I'm going to need it. And if I only need 18%, great. And if I, and if I turns out I need 22%, at least I'm not scrambling for all that money at once at the end, I've somehow buffered it. And I have exactly the same mentality when it comes to any of my investments that now at this stage, I'm able to take advantage of, whether it's something that has been annuitized or something that has a benefit that you're able to enact because you've had that investment for, you know, 20 years or whatever. Um, I always take the percentage off the top for my taxes. And I want that before that money ever lands in my bank account because I'm not great with funds. So that's interesting about because you said you're on social security. So I'm assuming you're at the age where you can now tap into the annuities or you can start withdrawing retirement money out of these accounts. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I'm talking about by saying when I do tap into it, the instructions are to right off the top, put 20% into my tax account. I like that you're pointing it out because I'm not retired yet or of retirement age. <laughs> no, you're a, you're a young puppy. But this is, but it, but it's sort of like, it doesn't change when you retire because it's like, yeah, you get those retirement funds, but you still have to then pay taxes on that income. I have to pay bloody taxes on my social security income at the end of the year, which kind of sucks, but so be it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Our previous guest was saying, reframing things of like, instead of saying, oh, I have to pay the rent or I have to pay the mortgage. You can say, oh, I get to pay the rent to live here, or I get to pay my mortgage to have this awesome place. Not, not, not only that, and, and you're right, attitude and outlook is everything. And if you frame taxes around the fact that you have to pay them because you made money, the more you have to pay means the more money you made. So quit bitching about having to pay so much tax because it meant you made a lot of money. You know, you have to be really poor to get those tax breaks and to get those tax reliefs. If the biggest problem in my life is which pair of jeans I'm going to put on today and where they might be, which house they might be located in, my God, what a, you know, what a charmed existence I must have. I'm happy to pay taxes to have a life like that. All right. So when you moved to Florida, you, you said that you uh, incorporated down there. I didn't incorporate. I created an LLC, a limited liability corporation. And I did that in 2011. So I had been down here already for four-ish years. And I began doing more work on my music archives, doing things that had nothing to do with my lighting profession, but had everything to do with, shall we say, a passion projects of mine. I wanted an umbrella to keep that safe. And I have an attorney down here who does specialize in our industry. Um, and we form Backlit Productions, LLC, which is where my music endeavors, my podcast, all of those things, I filter all of them through that. Got it. Also, I'm just going to tease a future episode about your podcast because, you know, I love talking with podcasters. So we're, we're going to have a whole separate discussion on your podcast. <laughs> oh, I'd love to do that. Can I ask about your music endeavors? Because it's sort of like music historian... I don't know what else you, you, you're doing with that, but is that income generating? Well, I am just at the cusp of it, and I'm hoping 
that it can be income generating at some point in time. It was part of the reason that I trademarked the phrase, the heartbeat of the dance floor, which is the name of my podcast and also as a website of that name. Um, and there are ways I'm led to believe that one can monetize on these things. I've yet to discover them. It's all very, very new for me. This kind of began in earnest through the pandemic and through the world being shut down. I'm no longer working in my chosen career as of February of 2020. You know, I'm unemployed. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to segue. But at that point in time, I was also involved with the Brooklyn Museum and their Studio 54 Night Magic exhibit, which opened in New York, was supposed to open in New York on the 13th of March. And I flew up for a VIP party. And when I returned to Florida after my week in New York, I was to be continue working, of course. And we all know what happened on the 13th of March. And Marsha saw it collapsing around her on the 12th and booked a flight and flew to Florida and didn't move for 18 months. Uh, but out of that sprang this endeavor with a lot of my musical archives, with the work I was had done with this documentary, with the Studio 54 documentary, with getting all of these files that I had now, these digital files, and putting them together and assembling them, working on a number of specials, with Sirius XM over the years. So all of these things kind of eventually led up to that. Here I am in the middle of pandemic. What the blank am I going to do with myself? Oh, let me do all of these things that I've been meaning to do, but haven't had the time. And poof, before you know it, I've got a legacy website, SoundCloud accounts, MixCloud accounts, constantly uploading and putting up productions from this DJ Roy Thode, who was just amazing in and of his own right, uh, launched the podcast, uh, have that going not quite a year. We launched our first episode in September. Congrats, belated, bel belated Mazel Tov. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the, the trademark is registered. So hopefully we're on our way. Soon we're going to be offering T-shirts. It's, it's a new endeavor. I, it seems to be a third career that's landed on me. And that wonderful title of Nightlife Historian, credit given where credit is due, it is Scott Greenstein, who is the president and CEO of Sirius XM Radio, dubbed me with that title when I moderated a town hall they did in April of 2019 with four DJs on their Studio 54 radio. And for that, he dubbed me nightlife historian Marcia Stern. And I liked it when they said, so this is what we want to call you. What do you think? And I thought, that's pretty cool. I'll take it. All right. So I feel like... I had a wonderful conversation. <laughs> um, is there anything about finances or lighting or music that you want to mention or talk about before we wrap up? I guess the first thing about lighting in my career is that I am so grateful to have been embraced by and surrounded by such wonderful, wonderful, creative, intelligent, and kind people. And they have been ubiquitous throughout my career, whether it's my friends from the music past or my friends from lighting past or however we've encountered, um, you know, that's, that's a really wonderful thing that gives me the ability to do what it is I'm doing now. So I'm very grateful for that. Financially, gosh, there's got to be a way that I can learn to monetize on all of this. I know it's out there. I just am not quite sure how to do it. But in the meanwhile, 
I will say I'm enjoying this and it's a passion project. And I am sure that another lighting design is going to cross my path at some point in time. But right now, this is kind of what's filling me. And if it's bringing joy to people, if it is opening up their world um, to an artist they didn't know, or maybe to an interesting way of looking at something, I like to go down a kind of left turn path on the podcast. It's not as obvious as dancing to the disco beat. In fact, my latest episode that was taped is about lighting and it features lighting designers and it features four highly achieved lighting designers, all of us with a foot in disco, all of our commonality. Uh, so that'll be an interesting one when that comes out. And I'm, I, if, if people enjoy what I'm doing as much as I am enjoying doing it, then maybe this is my next third career. Awesome. And just because I'm curious and I like to test myself as to who I know, what are the names of those four lighting designers? I have Mr. Paul Gregory, whose company Focus Lighting has just made just un, unparalleled in the world of art, architecture. And his touch into disco is that he designed and manufactured the, the lit dance floor for Saturday Night Fever with his company Light Lab. And my next guests come from the world of the Red Parrot, where we met Ken Billington and also Jason Kantrowitz, both, you know, perhaps from Broadway, off-Broadway, many productions, as well as outside events, Radio City Music Hall, of course. Ken did that for a gazillion years, along with Jason. Um, theme parks, uh, uh, you know, SeaWorlds and cruise, you know, and on and on and on. And we have collectively the Red Parrot as our cohesiveness. Uh, and Ann Militello, who, interestingly enough, we found out recently that she and I were probably the only two women in 8081 that did lighting in New York City clubs. And we didn't know each other because, of course, we were working in different places. That's awesome. So I knew every single name you said there. Ann Militano just did a... I think it was for the Studio School of Design. They did like an online presentation about the history of lighting there was a women in lighting seminar thing that was a few months ago online that she did with a European organization. And last year at LDI, she did a presentation and much to my surprise, I'm sitting in the audience and at, at one of her last presentations and slides was various women in lighting in today's world and groundbreakers. And I thought, that's my picture up there. <laughs> so that was truly lots of fun. Um, yeah, I was very flattered that each of them was enthusiastic to be involved in the podcast. And my initial audience may be from the disco music dance world, but I think it's a much bigger world when you talk about the entire production, the entire magic of the moment, the entire heartbeat, in my case, the heartbeat of the dance floor, but a dance floor can be a lot of things. I think the dance floor can be a rock concert as well. I love it. I love it. Okay, so this is just something I, I've heard on another podcast I listened to, and so I'm throwing it in at the end of mine. Um, is there a question that you would like to ask me? I guess the first one that comes to mind is just how do we monetize on a podcast, Ethan? Yeah, I love that question. So let me honestly answer it. <laughs> and that is I have a Patreon account. And that is where I have made any money from my podcast. 
And that's by putting out early releases, some extra content. Um, like the things that we cut out of this episode between you and I, I'll put that over on my Patreon so people can listen. Um, to. And it's usually lighting people <laughs> that people want to listen to. They want to hear the like lighting stories that I end up cutting out. Um, so that's the only way I've been able to monetize. But I have 25 patrons and that gives me $189 a month. But I put that money, half of it back out into other people's patrons, or I subscribe to other artists who have side hustles, things like that. Um, so when all is said and done, before the taxes, I make $75 a month doing this. You know, it's I, it, it, I don't know if it's a money-making proposition, but so much in today's world has changed. And the whole digital economy, I know in the music business, and one of my mentors in getting my whole podcast and website up and running is Lenny Fontana. He does a show called True House Stories. And Lenny also now does a Twitch channel. And I've gotten introduced to the wonderful world of Twitching. And there are ways to monetize and there are ways to put up money and there are ways to participate free. But if you really want to be a participant, you know, you do have to cop a, a few bucks and buy, get the cute little emojis and the bits and the tits and the nips and the buds and all of those things that they sell that one does to participate. But he also has a record label. And in the world of today, where so much is digital, record labels of the old days are just not quite the same as they were. And I often ask him just how do you make money on some of your releases? And it's a very, very dodgy field because of everything being so available, because of everything being so accessible. Nice. Um, one last question before I let you go, which is where can people connect with you and who do you want connecting with you? Um, anybody who's interested certainly can reach out. I'm available on Facebook. Um, I also have given you links to both websites from the heartbeat of the dance floor and Royfo.com. Those are the both websites that I administer. There's a couple of playlists. All, all platforms are available from both websites, whether it is just the playlists from Royfo.com that are music or the playlists from the heartbeat of the dance floor, which include the YouTube channel, as well as two playlists on SoundCloud. One is for the podcast itself. And another that is music, sometimes associated with a particular podcast and sometimes just music. Awesome. I'll put links to all your info in the show notes. Yeah. And I administer those sites. So if anyone reaches out there, it's me that they're going to get. Marsha, I had an absolute blast. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to chat with you again. As did I, Ethan. Thank you. It was great. And I really do look forward to seeing you in November at LDI. I know we'll have fun because it's a great show and we always have fun at great shows. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are Marsha mentioning the entertainment business is made up of loving relationships. I totally agree. Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn says there's two types of exchanges in business, transactional and transformative. Transactional being a designer lights a show and the producer gives them a paycheck. Transformative being what higher purpose is achieved by the designer lighting the event or improvements to the producer, the creative team or production team that's making it happen. How do the collaborators take care of each other? 
those transformative ties are what make the industry worthwhile and how so many people get fulfillment out of the industry. Marsha mentioned starting small with retirement savings. So first you work on W-2 income and that automatically adds to your social security benefits. Then starting with simple things like CDs that can be purchased through your bank account. Then moving on to brokerage or retirement accounts. The way Marsha explains about social security echoes back to our episode with Destiny Powell way back on episode 40. Now, she was saying that if you're using 1099 income, you don't want to itemize everything so much so that you aren't paying any taxes every year because those taxes are adding to your social security benefits. So remember, if you're having trouble saving for retirement, try to work on W-2 because that's going to automatically build some social security for you. And if you're on 1099 only, try to generate more income. Even if you're not setting aside money for yourself, you at least have to pay more taxes and that will help you with a little more social security. I normally don't even count social security because it's just out of sight, out of mind, but this was an interesting way to look at it. So do you have anything to add to our conversation or a follow-up question? Did you learn anything? Please email me directly at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com or find Marsha's info in the show notes. I also added a link to her LinkedIn profile. We'd both love any feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get access to our bonus content, including today's outtakes, where Marsha talks about using lots of Verilites before they were available for purchase. We also talk about LDI, where we'll be in November for a live episode of Artistic Finance. So if you feel so inclined, and I hope you do, please join us as a patron. You can cancel anytime and levels start as little as $3 a month. Join up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. If you're not ready to be a patron, there's still two things you can do to help us out. The first is wherever you watch or listen to this show, please subscribe. That will put each new episode into your feed. Whether or not you listen is up to you, but you'll at least see our titles and can decide from there. The second thing you can do to help us out is to pay the fee for listening to the show. It's a free show, but there is a fee, and that is to tell someone about the show. If you do mention it on social media, please tag Artistic Finance or me, Ethan Steimel, or Marsha Stern. If you do that, thank you in advance. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.